And so the Russo brothers enter into the MCU. It's funny as they have a bit of a reputation for being comedic directors, uh, mostly on their television work, obviously. But what I find funny about that is that they have done three, four works in the MCU. This, Civil War, Infinity War, and Endgame. All very dark works. I just thought I'd point that out, because I find it funny. Um, There was supposed to be a scene in this film which included Hawkeye as well. Apparently there were some scheduling conflicts or whatever with uh, Jeremy Renner, which made it so that didn't happen, which is a darn shame, because I would have liked the inclusion. First of all, I'm a big sucker for continuity. Second of all, what the hell was he doing this entire time, right? What was Hawkeye up to? He shows up again in Ultron, so where is he here? But the scene, for those of you not aware, was supposed to be him jumping in and basically being sent by S.H.I.E.L.D. to take out Cap. And he gets to Cap and whispers to him, You gotta make it look real! Because he's the one who's actually helping Cap out. He, in fact, is the one who ends up removing the tracker, the tracing device in Cap's old uniform, which is also deleted scene from the film. Although you do notice he does change his uniform, although it's far more of a thematic thing than a, Oh God, there's a tracking device in the old one kind of a thing. There's an actual, this is, to my knowledge, this is the first time there's an actual explanation for why the Avengers aren't present in this. It, the, the movie just takes place over too short a period of time. Three days, point in fact. Uh, I still call bull. <laughs> there's several scenes where they have several minutes to discuss, okay, who do we trust? Who do we go to in our time of need? Now, I like Falcon as much as anybody. In fact, probably more than most people because he's awesome. But... You, you can't tell me he couldn't phone up Stark, right? They're like, hey, Stark, hey, listen. Yeah, yeah, so Hydra is S.H.I.E.L.D. Could you do something about that? Thanks, thanks. I mean, come on. It, granted, Banner probably wouldn't be that useful here. Thor's off busy trying to save the multiverse or the sector or whatever. And, uh, well, Hawkeye is in a deleted scene. And Widow's right there and Cap's right there, so, I mean... <laughs> I still think Stark could have been in this, but at the same point, this is the great terrible nature of the MCU. Robert Downey Jr. makes a ridiculous amount of money every time he shows up in one of these films. It's actually been a huge contestion point. In fact, there have been multiple points in history where they have basically threatened to or tried to write Tony Stark out of the story just because Robert Downey Jr. was getting so expensive. So it doesn't really... You know, surprise me to know that he, you know, they would actually go out of their way to try and ensure that he wouldn't be present in the narrative, even as a cameo, especially since this isn't his film. So, basically, what I'm trying to say is I understand, but that doesn't mean I'm giving it a free pass. I just wanted to give both sides of that argument. So, we see Falcon, Sam. Let me just say really quick that Anthony Mackie is kind of awesome as the Falcon, as Sam, and he's great. I'm probably going to gush about him several times during this film. I really do enjoy his performance a lot. Apparently, he and Chris Evans are friends in real life, and it shows because the two actors have amazing chemistry together. There's just a a sort of automatic camaraderie that's there that's actually kind of hard to explain. I've seen it before in real life, of actually amongst military vets, believe it or not, where, if, let me give you a direct example. There's a scene where you know, Steve asks, did you lose anybody? And Sam says, pretty much without hesitation, yeah, and gives the story to him. And Steve, of course, understands, because he'd lost Bucky, too, right? 
I point that out because most people, if you asked them, did you lose anybody, there'd be hesitance or they'd you know, not want to talk about it or they just deflect or whatever. Now, he opens up immediately because I don't know how to describe it. There's, Like I said, there's just that sort of automatic connection there of bl blunt honesty. Your bed's too soft, right? Feels like you're falling into a marshmallow. Both of them just get it immediately. It's great. It's great. Um, it's good stuff. And the whole ex-vet thing is just very well done. Um, there's also a really great scene later on where Sam is helping out the vets. You know, he's, he's helping the, uh, the, the people who are trying to accommodate. The woman mentioning she swerved because she, was, she thought it might have been an IED. Just, yeah, that's... <laughs> like I said, they do some good stuff with that. That one scene right there, by the way, that one little bit. That's how you do PTSD right there. I'm just saying Iron Man 3, that was good. And it was so understated, too, which is kind of the point. But I bring up the fact that he's helping those vets because that right there gives us every insight into the, let's call it the morality of Falcon that we actually need to know. The fact that he is volunteering his time to help out his fellow vets pretty much gets across everything you need to know about the personality of the man. Although he does have more depths to him than that. He, he does know how to joke. He does know how to take things seriously. And he's generally just kind of awesome. But I digress. Let's move forward into the story. There's a bit where Captain America is racing through the ship, right? Trying to get, get take care of everyone and make sure that the alert isn't sounded. He actually succeeds, which is hilarious. How many of you guys have ever played Dishonored or Dishonored 2? Now, I have praised the hell out of both games, especially Dishonored 2, which is, in my opinion, the best of that genre of gameplay uh, that I've ever seen. I'm, I'm not, not to you know say that others are bad, but holy crap. But I bring it up because one of the strategies that's valid in games like that is basically the racing stealth. You approach the enemy so fast, because in most of these games, the enemy will see you, and then there's like about a half a second pause before the alert goes up. It's like, uh, uh, you know, something like that. Metal Gear Solid actually does something similar. So you got about a half a second to take them out before they raise the alarm. And I'm, I know this is a long analogy, but I point this out because what Cap is doing is that, and I just love it. The idea is you have to be fast enough and good enough to take out everyone very, very quickly before anyone can reach up and go, oh, you know, or we've got a, something, we've got an alert, you know. And it's a great approach and very, very Cap. It once again gets across his speciality. He is not an intelligence agent. He is not a spy. He is a soldier, or if you will, a warrior. And he is someone who is damned good at what he does. We also see in this mission it helps to establish that Cap has been practicing, that obviously he knew what he was doing thanks to his experiences in World War II. But his overall fighting style is far more... I hate to use this word, better, throughout the course of it. Yes, far more better throughout the course of this entire film, getting across the idea that he has been availing himself to the far more modern uh, practicing training abilities and training facilities that are at his disposal now, since he has been working with S.H.I.E.L.D. pretty much ever since Avengers. With that, now remember, it's been, what, uh... I don't remember how long. I don't remember the timeline. I just realized that. It has been a decent chunk of time since Avengers, I know that, and it will be a decent chunk of time until Avengers 2 comes out, but I digress. So he just is awesome. Now, for all of this, I do have to complain about this scene, because the shaky cam just drives me batty. I hate shaky cam. 
I, I have never liked shaky cam, so I'm automatically against it by bias, but I also have more neutral reasons to dislike it. It basically takes me completely out of the moment. I might as well close my eyes and listen to the scene, because I'll get more out of it than saying, This as it's going all over. So, <clears throat> they breach, they take him out, they fight. Um, I wrote down his name, but I have no idea how to pronounce it, and after some thought, I've decided to give up. So, they fight the MMA guy, who, who does his own stuff, because you know he's, he's actually one of the best fighters, or at least was one of the best fighters in the world. <laughs> it's actually a pretty decent scene. Um, I only mention it because it showcases how Cap, despite everything, still is more low-tier. That's actually going to be a recurring trend throughout the course of this movie, that this is not Thor. This isn't even Stark, who has access to ridiculous tech, incredible genius, and tons of resources, and basically infinite money. No, this is Rogers. He is super durable and super strong and super fast, and he's very well trained. But that is it. He is superhuman, but very low tier on the scale. Because that's not the point, but I'm getting ahead of myself. We, we see a scene where Romanoff is basically talking about his love life. This forms sort of a recurring trend throughout the film, but what I like best about it is this really helps to highlight some of her mentality. The woman who is more than capable of talking about, well, maybe that nurse across the way, while still performing her mission. The fact is that she is fully focused on her mission. She has no trouble doing that, and also discussing at the same time her mind is extremely compartmentalized, as is befitting a spy of her nature which, of course, kind of ties in thematically to what Fury has been doing and not telling Rogers about the spy mission. Fury, of course, what happens thereafter is actually, in my opinion, a really great scene because Rogers approaches Fury, confronts him, says, hey, look. And Fury defends himself adequately and smoothly at every point. Rogers is upset, of course, but Fury basically just says, look, this is an intelligence operation. I didn't tell you everything so that everything doesn't need to know, blah, 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 blah. But what I love best about that scene is, although the timing of it is admittedly suspect, because this is a movie, I love what happens immediately after. Fury says, come here. And Rogers is like, what? They go into a lift. Fury says, all right, take us to the carrier level. The, the lift says, I can't do that. Rogers doesn't have clearance. Keep that in mind. Captain America does not have clearance to see the entire helicarrier thing. He had never even heard of it, in fact until Fury showed him. This right here is a wonderful insight into Fury's mentality. This is his backups upon backups upon backups. He obviously believed in this plan. He put forward with it. It was open. It was honest. He was totally down with the idea of preventative maintenance. I know that's a very cold analytical word or phrase, but that is exactly what he is proposing here. We are going to put helicarriers in the air. They're going to have extremely precise guns. No collateral damage. We see a problem that's about to become an actual problem, we get rid of it before it becomes an actual problem. There's a great deal of genuine logic and reasoning behind his mentality, and we'll be discussing that later because it's going to be coming up later. But he is Nick Fury, and he is just as uneasy about this whole thing as anyone else is. Remember, he did order that attack. He did order those people to attack his own ship so he could send his other people in to figure out what the hell was going on. And on the mission to do that, he sent Cap and Romanoff, the two people, other than Maria, that he trusts the most. So, he, <laughs> he, he's obviously still uneasy about this whole thing. I like that. 
because it forms a wonderful contrast. See, Fury is the person who has, for most of his life, had to trust no one. Literally trusting no one. There's no such thing as an absolute. Everyone can be turned. Everyone can go against. I mean, as he points out in the film, this is why I have trust issues, as he points to, you know, Pierce. Spoiler. But the way he... The way he talks around Cap shows that that's not 100% true. That he does trust Captain America. Why wouldn't he? And so he trusts him enough to show him all this and bring him in on the loop. Just in case. It's probably nothing. I, I, it's, it's very likely to be nothing. I just want to look into this a little bit, you know? I want to look into it a bit to verify that it's nothing. Oh, no. By the way, I told Cap about this, but I'm not going to tell you about that, Pierce. It's just a brilliant, subtle move, and I love it. Forgive me for talking about it so long. But the way he gives his story about his grandfather... By the way, Samuel L. Jackson's grandfather actually did work on an elevator. And how he'd go home with his bag of ones and out of 22. That's pretty much Nick Fury right there. Oh, I like people plenty. I just don't trust them. So, oh, I suppose this is actually where I'm going to talk about this. Security versus freedom. This is a long and complicated topic, and one that thankfully the movie actually doesn't spend too much time on. Not because I think the topic shouldn't be discussed, but rather because I think the film had other things to say, thematically speaking. But one of the initial points that is being made is security versus freedom. Cap says this is wrong, this is fear. What I like about this is the ep the episode. God, I keep doing that. The movie makes the point that both Rogers and Fury have a point. That they both have their own correct side of things. Rogers correctly points out that this is basically a form of preventative maintenance that involves terror and killing. And Fury points out the fact that this can prevent worse from happening. Cap says, I thought the crime came at, you know, I thought the punishment came after the crime. But Fury says, sometimes we can't afford to wait. And it's worth noting that this, this, this all happens in the wake of Avengers, which itself happens in the wake of Thor. And that's very relevant for the setting, and is acknowledged, actually, in the universe, because ever since that hammer came down, and ever since th there was an alien invasion, funding has gone up, interest has gone up, firepower has gone up. They have been doing far more to stay far more ahead of the curve, as Fury himself points out. The funny thing is, though, none of that is directed at the possibility of external threats, only internal ones, ones on the rest of the planet. And that's the point, I think, that is key here that needs to be reminded, because this really isn't about the Chitauri coming back, or the Confederacy dealing with its thing, or whatever. This is about uh, what if someone sets off a dirty bomb in Moscow. This is trying to stop that from happening. I'm not going to say anything else on that topic. If you guys want to, you're more than welcome to. Just keep it civil. That's all I ask. Now, <laughs> of course, Cap has a museum exhibit. Why wouldn't he? <laughs> and it's, it's, it's actually very funny to me. I mean, I've been to museums in real life for people that, well, i got to be 100% honest with you, I can't even remember their names. <laughs> I mean, yeah, presidential stuff, but I'm talking like, eh, and here's an exhibit for Bob. Random dude who we've never heard of before. I mean, that's just real life. So, of course, Captain Fricking America is going to have a museum exhibit in the Smithsonian in D.C. By the way, it's so weird. I'm sorry. I don't know if I... I I'm just going to segue for a second here. I've actually been to D.C. Uh, it was an interesting trip. It's always so weird when any, whenever any movie or show or whatever portrays D.C. Because it's never... They're in 
Cleveland, I believe, is actually where they're filming this. But they're never actually in D.C. It never looks anything like D.C. There's a couple of establishing shots of, like, the, the Washington Monument or the Pentagon or, or the White House or whatever. But it looks, looks nothing like the city at all. Anyways, I'm sorry, getting off topic. And then we see him in Carver. This is a nice touch because, A, we see that he is visiting and has been visiting Carter regularly ever since he got, you know, more adjusted to the modern era. And, B, it shows what's happened with her, that she is having some kind of memory issues. They don't say exactly this could be Alzheimer's, this could be a form of dementia, which is unfortunately very common in anybody of that general age range. And it's a damn shame because Carter was awesome and... Seeing her like this has got to wreck him, but I like, this is just my impression. I like to think that Rogers goes regularly, and she doesn't remember him each time, and he still goes regularly. This is a good segue time. Jasper's in this film. He's a Hydra agent, of course. Uh, he died. He dies in this film, I believe. I actually don't remember. Season 2 of S.H.I.E.L.D. isn't super concrete in my head. One of the things... I, I, I have sort of a topic here. One of the things I liked about this film was that it did two things that I enjoyed. One, it altered the status quo. Funny thing, every Russo Brothers film does that to some extent or another. Keep in mind, I still haven't seen Endgame because it isn't out yet by my perspective. But every event, every film they've done other than Endgame has altered the status quo in a significant long-term way. I like that. I, I have always been against the idea that status quo is God. I don't like that concept when it comes to fiction. Never mind real life. B, they like to be big on continuity. This is actually one of the bigger continuity films of Phase 2, most notably the ways it significantly ties into the S.H.I.E.L.D. show. In fact, S.H.I.E.L.D. kind of spun its wheels until this movie came out, and then immediately after, pretty much every story arc for like the immediate uh, future was all about dealing with the fallout of this event and dealing with you know, sh sh taking down the rest of the Hydra agents and Hydra cells and trying to sort out what's left of S.H.I.E.L.D. in the... New Shield, or whatever you want to call it. Now, <clears throat> I'm in favor of that. In fact, I'm one of those people who thinks the idea of movies and television coexisting alongside each other in terms of continuity is an absolutely amazing idea. It's a shame it's basically never done again, even with the MCU. Shield references Infinity War, and I do mean references. It's like, there's an invasion in, in Africa, and that's about the extent of it. Uh, Jessica Jones has nothing to do with anything, Daredevil, nothing to do with anything, etc., etc. I understand why they didn't do that. Well, I understand the publicized reason why they didn't decide to keep that continuity going. I just don't agree with it. Everything I have seen about, well, this film and its connecting points shows that this was a good idea. And I don't know, actually, why it failed. And I bet you, I, I guarantee you, some people are going to put in the comments and say this is why it's failed. And I'm not going to say you're wrong in doing so. It is entirely possible there's like five or six reasons why it failed. But my point being, I've never come to what I personally feel is a decisive, conclusive reason why this experiment was canceled. Why they decided to stop doing that. <sighs> Regardless... While I'm on the subject, I just want to mention some other little tidbits of continuity here. Obviously, Carter, I just mentioned. Jasper, he's, he's there. Um, there's a few other characters from the show, actually. Uh, Senator Stern is there. You remember him from Iron Man 2, especially. Hail Hydra. I gotta say, considering he played just a bastard back, you know, back in the old Iron Man films, it was nice to see that he actually was evil. I, I know that sounds so petty, but it was just kind of a nice little thing. 
He also name drops Stephen Strange. Now that is interesting given the timeline and the fact that Strange is not, you know, anyone other than an extremely intelligent, extremely talented doctor at this point in time. Just kind of implies the idea that Strange was still on the list for someone who was a threat to peace simply because of the nature of who and what he was. Also, Moon Knight is on that list, apparently. I'm kidding. I don't actually know if that's true or not. But the guy in Cairo? Just saying. Anyways, <clears throat> back to the point. So, the council... There's a nice little bit here where the council... Uh, <laughs> the council's interesting. We're already supposed to be against the council because of Avengers. And the council portrays themselves as if they are antagonists almost the entire film. But they're not. And I like that. <laughs> what we see instead is that they are politicians, but not evil politicians. They're not good, but they are certainly not you know, like Mr. Stern over there, like I just mentioned. Instead, they come across as people who are a little bit cloistered, you know, a little bit out of the loop, and very self-interested in whatever it is their uh, particular uh, agenda, I guess is the word I want to use here, is. They're very focused on what they want to push and using S.H.I.E.L.D. in that particular method. And we get the idea that this is an international organization, you know, right? That being stated, I do love how they're portrayed as people who try to call Pierce to task. In fact, they try to throw Fury to the wolves. Pierce actually defends him. However, they then say, you know, Fury tried to use his friendship with you to, to curtail this. And Fury's obviously a bad guy. Therefore, we need to push this forward. That is, of course, why Pierce had Fury killed and deliberately wove this narrative. Quick question for you guys. Do you think Pierce regretted ordering Nick Fury killed? Honest question. I'll talk more about Pierce later, but it comes up now in my mind because, first of all, I actually really like Robert Redford. Uh, granted, I haven't seen him act anything in recent times, but, you know, I, I did enjoy quite a bit of his flicks. And B, he manages to add a strange amount of genuine humanity to his role, which is fascinating for someone who is an evil psychopath, but regardless. Talk more about him in a bit. So they go to have Nick killed. You know, the cops, the cops go after him in Cleveland, sorry, D.C., and they've got full autos. They're, they're out in the open. This is, this is just happening in downtown, and they're just shooting wildly. I point this out because I'm reminded of Iron Man 3, which I just saw relatively recently for the sake of the rumination. You remember that scene where the woman just flashes a badge and says, hey, are we cool here? And the sheriff says, no. I would have really liked it if at least some you know, real cops or anybody else was basically like, what the hell? Just a quick second or two, you know, just something in the background to show that people were not just going to automatically accept the idea that people who are wearing official uniforms are firing full automatics in downtown, you know? I mean, come on. <laughs> just, I wanted to comment on that really quick. So then Bucky shows up. Yeah, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And then the Winter Soldier shows up, who we have no idea what mystery is. Yeah, no, Bucky shows up. Now, what I find interesting about this is Bucky is portrayed as awesome, and yet all he does in this scene, I mean, he's awesome in other scenes, but in this scene, he shoots a gun and then gets out of the way and then walks casually over, giving Fury time to escape. Anybody could have used that gun, <laughs> right? I mean, it probably has a kickback, so they, you know, they don't have the arm like he does, but come on, I'm sorry, arm, left arm. So, who does Fury go to? Of course Fury goes 
to Captain Falcon. Captain Falcon. Captain America. Captain Falcon, that sounds cool too. Now he goes to Cap. He goes to Rogers. This is great for two reasons. Reason number one, trust. Reason number two, it's the most expected thing for him to do. What Fury is doing here is in its own right brilliant. And I'm pretty sure he did it on purpose because he is a manipulative bastard. In a good way. See, what Fury does is he goes to Cap because he trusts him. He does. I really legitimately think he trusts Captain America. I'm with him on that. I would too. A lot of people would. And then he basically ensures that he is in the one place that he knows most of his enemy is going to know he's going to go to. And he is there knowing he's going to be attacked and probably killed and then try to fake his own death and ensure that Cap is involved in the circumstance. He's basically dragging Cap into the mystery while at the same time trying to arrange his own death under his own, you know, under his own rules, basically, knowing that Kate is right there in order to try and back him up. I like that. It's, it's, it's very smart. It's very Fury. And I want to talk about Fury really quickly here, because I have a little diagram I wrote down as, as this movie was going. Nick Fury is a unique confluence of personalities. On the one side, you have people like Captain Rogers. On the other side, you have people like Pierce, honestly. Fury's in the middle of those two. Almost exactly in the middle, I would say. He is a cold-hearted pragmatist who knows that you have to do horrible things to make things happen. That you have to be willing to break the rules. That you have to be willing to do wrong in order to do right. And yet, at the same time, Fury isn't as far as Pierce. He isn't as far as those people who think like that. He is not a sociopath. He feels when he orders a soldier to their death. He cares about the people under his control, and he wants to trust those under him. Point in fact, by the end of this film, there are at least three people he now trusts, and with good reason. So, I, I know this is going to sound so cliched, but I would say that Nick Fury has his soul still. He knows he has to do horrible things, but it bothers him to do them. In short, he is a Cisco, not a Justice Lord. Now, this, of course, leads to S.H.I.E.L.D. versus Cap. <laughs> um, which is a nice scene. It's actually a great scene as Cap is just basically completely overwhelms all of the S.H.I.E.L.D. agents and manages to get out. I love where all the people just get in the room and get in the room. It's like, all right, does anyone, does anyone want to get off? And then they all attack him at once, and of course he wins, even though they have the jump on him, so to speak, even though they have numbers on him, and even though they have special equipment designed to go after him, he still wins because he's Captain Freaking America. <sighs> he is the Captain of the United States of America. Sorry, I had to do that just once. So, Pierce, of course, plays the politicians, the council, and basically ensures that the launch goes ahead of schedule. I kind of already mentioned that, so we're just moving on really quick. I have a lot of notes on this film, so I'm just kind of rapid-firing these here. Romanoff, well, so Fury dies. I'll go ahead and admit that despite the meme, I actually thought they were going to kill off Fury here. Point in fact, Fury only shows up two more times after this, prior to the uh, teaser, at the post credit scene at the end of Infinity War. Now, from what I understand, he's going to be a more recurring occurrence in, more recurring occurrence in uh, the Spider-Man film and a couple of other things. But for the most part, he was just a non-entity. So it wouldn't have been too surprising if they did decide to off him. 
At the same time, I wasn't really expecting them to. And honestly, it's because of the comics. For those of you not aware, Nick Fury has died so many times in the comics, it's basically a joke. Anywho, <clears throat> Fury dies. I find myself wondering if Maria knew then and there. Obviously, somebody knew. Somebody had to know, because he was in severe medical trauma. He really did nearly die. And someone had to take care of him. But he didn't tell Romanoff, and he didn't tell Rogers, which I find interesting, since he does end up having a good reason to trust both of them by the end of the film, as I pointed out. Romanoff takes his death really badly. I find that interesting in its own right, but it helps to add more to her character as well. She goes on her own kind of journey throughout this film, uh, the similar way to several other characters do, actually. See, for Rogers, his overall arc through this film is predominantly about him understanding and accepting, eh, wrong word, coping, coping with the nature of how things are now. Now, a lot of people say that life used to be simpler and easier, and now it's complicated and gray. I don't buy that. You could say that in a vacuum, but I've studied history. Life was still complicated and gray back in the 1940s. I'm sorry. Life has always been complicated and gray. That's life. Rather, I think this is more about Rogers coming to grips with how the world is in general, not just now, but the very nature of what life is like. He has lived such a binary existence up to now, right? He grew up in a time in which we were fighting the Nazis, for God's sakes, where there was a definitive, they're the bad guys kind of an enemy. And a lot of people were doing a lot of things to try and keep that enemy curtailed. And then, you know, he ends up going against Hydra, which is even worse. So you can kind of see how he develops this black and white mor morality, this black and white perspective. Avengers comes along, and that challenges that, but only a little bit. But that did begin his arc back in Avengers, as he started to realize that things were not that simple or not that binary. Here, he sees that in almost every respect. Even Romanov, someone he considers a close comrade and whatnot, is someone who pretty much lies around him in almost every respect up until a certain point, at which point she stops, which brings me to her character arc. She is someone who has always seen the world as black and black, to use the, uh, the TV tropes term. Horrible and also horrible. And this is also her journey to seeing that the world is, in fact, complex and gray. They're just coming at it from different angles. As she goes through this, she understands that there are good people, that there are good things, that there is worth fighting for, and there is worth dying for. But most importantly of all, and this is the real kicker, as, as I myself have quoted as saying, it's relatively easy to find something you are willing to die for. It is significantly harder to find something you are willing to live for. And I think that's the journey she goes through on this film. I'm reminded very strongly of the scene when the two of them are in the truck. By the way, apparently, um, Scarlett Johansson and Chris Evans actually wrote some of their own dialogue for that scene, and it shows because it's extremely natural. Point in fact, a lot of people, including myself and my sister, all thought that uh, Romanoff and Captain Rogers would end up getting together romantically. Not necessarily because, you know, oh, they'd be so great together, but rather because he, he represented something that was unique to her. Someone she could trust. Someone she could be herself with. Someone she could be open with. She flat out says, what do you want me to be? And he just says, how about a friend? Because as much as life is complex, Rogers is still a simple person, even as he grows to realize this. And for him, it really is that simple. Right? I'll discuss that more later. But anyways, I'm getting ahead of myself. So, the two of them are on the run. 
There's a few great scenes with the two. They actually make a great team, uh, tactically as well as in terms of character dynamic. A lot of good character stuff in this film. If I might be so bold, despite the fact that this film has a decent amount of flash to it, I think the, the relative lack of flash percentage-wise compared to how much character is... is how, many, how many scenes in this are talky scenes? That's what it's called in, in Hollywood. How many of these scenes in this film are talky scenes? Just people talking to each other. A huge amount! Someone made the comment, I forget who, please forgive me, that this is a political thriller in the guise of a superhero movie, and I kind of agree. There is a definite focus on the idea that this is all about the people and the politics. And I like that. Because we see a lot of how the two interact well one with another. After all, he is someone who is a fighter and a tactician. Within seconds, he has analyzed who is coming, where they're coming from, and how to deal with them. In combat terms, in military terms, she is the intelligence agent, the espionage, the infiltrator. And she just says, nah, just do this. And they don't even get seen. You can see how their, their abilities complement each other perfectly. And it kind of makes them a good team as a consequence. Funnily enough, the person who would usually fit into this team as well would be the smart guy, which would be Stark. And then I guess you could have the muscle... Anyways, <clears throat> so, uh, look at my notes here. They both, uh, to talk about them a little bit more, because why not, if I have more notes about it, uh, truth versus the circumstance of truth. Rogers believes that truth exists. Romanoff believes that truth is a matter of circumstances. I find that interesting. And it does say a lot about the two differing perspectives, which I've just discussed. I just wanted to add more to that really quickly. So, there's a scene... They go to Zola, a lot of exposition happens, and at the one hour, uh, eight minute and 24 second mark, we are, you know, all of the secrets are revealed. Now, let's go ahead and discuss these and unpack these one by one. First of all, Hydra has always been in, in S.H.I.E.L.D., pretty much since S.H.I.E.L.D.'s inception. Okay? I like it. It doesn't quite line up. Nitpickers can and have pointed out many issues with this, but I still like it. A, because it actually makes a decent amount of sense from a macroscopic perspective that Hydra would try to do something exactly like this, and B, well, it changes the status quo, doesn't it? S.H.I.E.L.D. has already been doing some secretive and underhanded stuff. It's not really that far of a jump to think that Hydra has been also ensuring that some of those eight agencies and operations that they do have been pushing their agenda on the side. And only someone from a distant perspective could really see and analyze and say, oh, that's what's going on. I do wonder why Stark didn't notice this back in Avengers, but let's move on. Let's move on. Also, notice that he mentions that they were having trouble. You know, S.H.I.E.L.D. would have stopped you. Well, anybody who was in the way was removed. And then there's a shot of Howard Stark's death. Now, we're not covering Civil War in this particular arc, but that's a nice touch because that is a direct tie-in to Civil War, and I just wanted to point out that they actually put that thread right here. Not surprising, considering this is the Russo brothers, they're big on continuity, and they end up doing Civil War as well, but moving on. So, um, they talk about the Hydra ideal. This is probably the best film to really explain what Hydra believes in. Because, well, we can't go off of the comics, in fact, actually, the comics and this version of Hydra disagree with each other. So we have to understand what Hydra is to understand why they are such a zealous, fanatic cult. Because they are a cult. They are almost a religious cult, but at the very least, they are an uh, idealistic, or I should say an ideal cult. I'm saying that wrong. They are a cult of an idea. There we go. There we go. 
because their idea is very simple. Humanity cannot be trusted with its own freedom. Ergo, in order to make sure that everything is correct, we must make sure that there is a degree of order that is imposed upon all of reality, upon all of humanity, and then the world will be better. Now, real talk for a second. How many people do you know who actually think that way? I don't. I'm going to go and be honest about that. I, I, I don't agree. I think the complex. I think life is too complex for that. I think the variables are too numerous, and I think there's too many things, such as exceptions, which would get in the way of that. But I have known people in real life who legitimately, honestly believe in the Hydra ideal. Now, <laughs> I point that out because that is relevant for bringing up Zola's algorithm. Now, Zola's algorithm is basically magic, and we just all accept that. The general idea is that he is able to predict, analyze, and push out information so perfectly that he is capable of accurately predicting people's personalities and choices and whether they'd be a threat or not and all that fun stuff uh, somehow across basically the entire world, across the entire grid. Now, why is this relevant? First of all, the most obvious reason it's relevant is to identify people that would be a threat to the Hydra ideal. These are the people that they want to kill at the end of the film, including you know the president and a random guy in Missouri and Tony Stark and just all sorts of other people like that. It's a nice thing. It's a very chilling scene, I have to admit. It's actually terrifying. But I think that they also used it to identify all the people who wanted to join Hydra. All of the people who believed in the Hydra ideal. This then would explain why they have such ranks and so many people who are so loyal to them. See, loyalty is something that has to be very carefully crafted when it comes to fiction because there has to be a reason for it. There has to be an excuse or a, or a purpose behind why someone is willing to go through all this crap for someone who may or may not be a bad boss, right? Hydra is more than willing to kill their own, so why are these people so loyal to Hydra? Because these are the people, like I mentioned earlier, who really believe in the cause. This will come up again in the future, too, consequently. So, that's horrible. And then we reveal that Pierce is currently the head of Hydra, and also a bad guy. I'll be totally blunt, that caught me by surprise. It was intended to, of course. I mean, there's a reason they actually went ahead and cast Robert Redford in this role. Someone who is almost universally plays the good guys, or the, the you know the plucky person fighting against the horrible intelligence agency, or the horrible you know. I mean, how many times has he played that role, right? So it was a nice uh, casting choice inversion. But in addition to that, this is something that Interstellar also repeated, if you're remembering. But in addition to that, it also caught me because I have to admit, I didn't quite realize walking into it what the Hydra ideal was. Now, obviously, I just told it to you, but that's with the benefit of hindsight and watching this film several times. When I first saw it, all I saw Hydra as was the evil bad guys, the super Nazis, right? But to think that they actually believe in something, well, going back through, Pierce very clearly believes in that ideal. He is a, to, to borrow a phrase, he is a true believer. He is someone who really is a zealot for the cause. That's damn dangerous. So, um, Romanoff and Cap find out about the truth, right? I mentioned her character arc. One of the best moments of her character arc in this film is her coming to grips with the fact that she was working for Hydra. That bothers her. And I like that. 
as has been pointed out back in Avengers, where she kind of had the beginnings of this character arc, and actually, I'd say the first half of this character arc, and as is pointed out here, she thought she was going clean. She thought she was done with all this stuff. Yes, she'll be willing to do things that others don't. But it's for a good cause, damn it. I have a particular skill set, and I know how to use it. I'm going to use it to help people. At multiple points in time, this woman is significantly concerned about civilian casualties and trying to take care and help people. Even as they're fighting this horrible evil agency that's trying to kill her. That's Natasha Romanov. You don't kill civilians, right? You kill bad guys, sure, but you don't get other people involved. And that's an important mindset, because a Hydra person would say, well, whatever losses are necessary are acceptable thus providing another dividing line between her and Hydra, but also showing why this would shock her so much and shake her so much, because she understands that dividing line and is worried that she's on the wrong side of it. It is Cap's open faith trust in her, admitting flat out that he does trust her, that helps to remind her that she is not that horrible of a person. You'll notice, by the way, that of the many character arcs that go throughout this film, all of them gravitate around Captain Rogers. I don't think that's a coincidence. So... Speaking of character arcs, Anthony Mackie is awesome. <laughs> he really is just so awesome. I'm sorry I don't have much to say about him. But I do like how they come to him and like, hey, people are trying to kill us. And he says, yeah, I'm not. Come on in. Just immediate. Because like I said, there's that click between him and Rogers. There's just that automatic camaraderie. Like I said, it's something I've seen in real life before. It's amazing to behold, if I'm being completely honest. Forgive me for gushing about it. But what I love most about it is that as he is taking care of them and as they're talking through this thing, he just kind of walks over, grabs some highly confidential papers, and tosses them out. He's like, what's this? Consider it my resume. Sam, I, I can't ask you to do this. And what I love, you know, I can't ask you to come back. There is a hidden implication here that he bowed out well, par probably partially because his buddy died, but also because he didn't believe in the cause. Let's put it that way. Now, that's never stated outright, but it's the impression I always got that Falcon, excuse me, that Sam, was done. He was serving a military which was gray, uh, fighting in combat that he may or may not have agreed in. You know what I mean? And at the end, that just kind of bothered him to the point where he was like, all right, hung up his wings and walked out of it. Then... Captain America enters his life and doesn't ask him to fight for him. And that's a cause worth believing in. And I wrote this down because it's a great line. Dude, Captain America needs my help. There's no better reason to get back in. So. <laughs> they get awful uh, open. They, they get really open. The Hydra basically goes loud about how they're willing to try and kill these people in broad daylight. Big action sequence, not much to say about that. Although, what I find weird about that is that they're willing to go this loud this early. I mean, granted, launches in 16 hours, so maybe that's why. They're like, oh, we're going to control the world in less than a day anyways. What do we got to worry about? Thing is, Brock insists on not killing them while the helicopters are watching. Why? If they're so concerned about public image at this point, why even bother with that? It's just a small contrivance I never really cared for. Because ultimately, they are saved by almost total circumstance and the fact that Maria Hill managed to infiltrate them. Because she's, you know, kind of awesome with that. I do want to mention a couple of things before we move forward, though. First of all, Sebastian Sean actually apparently practiced with a real you know, plastic knife for quite a while to try and make it so that his movements were very smooth with it. I think it, it was a good job. I think he did a, a good job with it. But then at one hour, 23 minutes and 20 seconds, <gasps> Bucky? 
my God, it's Bucky. Okay. Honest question. How many of you were surprised by that? Yeah, I'm not raising my, my arm on this one. Number one, I know who the cat, the Winter Soldier is. I mean, you know, comics. But number two, it looked pretty obvious that that was him. Sebastian Sean, uh, or no, Sebastian Stan, excuse me. Um, underneath the the, the 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 mask and the goggles the whole time. You notice he never puts those on after he's revealed. A very typical fictional thing. Someone is hidden, but then they reveal who they are, and for whatever reason, they never put the cloak back on. It's a very common thing in fiction. Games, movies, books, or not books, manga. Manga? He, uh... <laughs> so... Why do you think, this is going to be a strange question, why do you think the Winter Soldier is a match in combat for Captain America? I'm not asking for, like, the official canon reason. I know what that reason is. I'm asking why you think that is, because he is portrayed as being a match for him more than once. So, why? Now, I'm going to go ahead and give my answer, which is partially the canon answer and partially headcanon answer, because... First of all, they're both pretty damn good in a fight, very well trained. He has the robotic arm, he's a super soldier. Uh, the difference is, it, honestly, if that was the end of the statement, if that was all of the variables, I think Captain America would beat him, you know, ten times out of ten. Thing is, there is one difference in their mentality. Rogers is not aiming, you know, Rogers is not a killer. Rogers is not trying to kill his opponent, he's trying to defeat or disable his opponent. And that, I feel, makes the difference. Because it's it's harder than it sounds to defeat someone without killing them than it is to just kill them. That's just my take on it. Regardless, oh my god, it's Bucky. No. Um. <laughs> There's a great scene. They're being led away in the prisoner van. Cap is just like, oh my god, you know, I... I can't believe it was Bucky. And, he, and what I love is Romanoff, who is an incredibly good person at reading people, immediately recognizes what's going through Rogers' mind and just says, it's not your fault. Just immediately zeroes in on that guilt thing. Love that. Then Maria gets them out. Woo. Then there's a scene with Pierce, Bucky, and a bank vault. I gotta admit, that scene bothers me. It was actually painful to watch it because it's horrifying in ways I don't actually properly know how to describe. They, they strap this guy in, lock him down, and, and connect electrical signals directly to his scalp in order to reprogram him. Funnily enough, there will be another very horrifying scene like this in another film by the Russo brothers involving this exact character. What I do want to say about that scene, though, this right here shows the personality of Pierce, more than anything else, in my opinion. This is a man who has absolutely no problem using and abusing Bucky Barnes in order to accomplish his ends. Why? Because the ends justify the means. The end. He is a justice lord, not a Cisco. So, <clears throat> they talk about dismantling S.H.I.E.L.D., that that's the price, that S.H.I.E.L.D. has to go along with Hydra. Um, that is certainly a debatable choice. It is very Roger's choice, because it's not really the correct choice, but we'll talk more about that in a minute, I swear. Regardless, I do wonder who's left, actually. Obviously, Coulson and his group keep going, and we do see Maria still with, you know, Fury in the end of uh, Infinity War, so... 
I don't know. Maybe Stark just kind of accepted some of that and started funding them. That would make sense, considering at the end of the film we actually see Maria literally go to work for Stark Industries. But anyways. Then what happens is a scene that I'm going to be made fun of. You guys are going to make fun of me for this. But it actually brought a tear to my eye. I'm not joking. Because what happens next is Captain America does the right thing. Oh, God, it's actually hit me again. He goes and he gets on the mic and he says, The truth. He just gets out there and tells them, hey, this is me, Captain Rogers, uh, Steve Rogers. Um, so Hydra has infiltrated us, and that's what the helicarriers are there. They're, do, they're there to do horrible, awful things, so you can't let them go live. Um, Pierce is the head of Hydra. He's the one who tried to head Nick Fury killed. And he just is honest, utterly, completely honest. And that is Captain Rogers right there, isn't it? See... His skill set, I mean, yeah, he's a good fighter, but really his skill set is that he is the captain. I've been saying this for years. In fact, when the MCU first started being a thing, me and my several friends and I had significant discussions about which role each person filled and you know how we would translate that to other things because we were designing like a tabletop thing based on it. And one of the, th the ideas was that Cap's ability, his, his skill set, was his charisma and his leadership. And this film shows that in spades, that this man is able to just say the truth and just say, I'm willing to try and fight and hurt and die for this, and I don't think I'm alone. Bam. Doesn't ask anything of anyone. Doesn't demand anything of anyone. Just says, this is the truth. Walks away. Mic drop. It's a, it's a really, 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 really good scene, and I love the blatant, utter honesty of it. And I want to give praise to Aaron Himmelstein. He plays launch tech number one. His character isn't even named. He's the guy who refuses to launch Captain's orders. I love that scene. I unabashedly love that scene. That scene right there is an ordinary guy with no special powers and no significant training and no weapon and no tech and no nothing saying no to a guy with a gun to his head. That takes balls right there, and that is an awesome scene. It is fortunate, then, that Kate also happened to be there. Oh, she does have training and a gun. So she is able to back this kid up. Oh, that was such a good scene. He's not even named. Of course, that's part of the point, isn't it? What happens in the next several scenes, and it's kind of slid in between the action sequences, is we see a lot of people basically saying, We gotta help! Don't let him launch! You know, Captain Rogers has no, no uh, air support! We've gotta support him! We just see a lot of people flocking to Captain America's banner. Because why wouldn't they? Wouldn't you? Honest question. Because I would. I'd probably die for it. I've, I'm like, I barely can run, given my bad leg, and I'm, you know, I've got asthma issues and blood sugar issues. I'd be terrible. I'd still do it. So Hydra just kind of starts to go loud. This is really when Hydra goes loud. And I point that out because... I was reminded of World of Warcraft Legion. Anybody who watched my lore run of Legion knows that there was kind of a running gag. See, there's certain demons in the Burning Legion that have the ability, I swear this is related, that have the ability to polymorph and appear as someone else. Shapeshift, right? And any time they were found out, they just, they just suddenly reveal themselves and be like, Bwahaha, you have found me out, but I, Dagarkathoth, will show, you know. They never tried to play it off. They never tried to maintain the illusion or say, oh, oh, God, this guy's crazy. You see this guy? No, they always just immediately accepted it. 
And I wonder if there was some Nethrazim amongst Hydra, because that's exactly what they do. Not the... But they're just like, yeah, we're evil. And they, they stop hiding anything. It's just, wow. Anyways. So, a um, bunch of action stuff happens. Romanoff does the public information dump, which, of course, leads to some stuff in the show, and was probably the incorrect thing to do, but, you know, whatever. And then she has the mask thing. I'm not going to comment on the mask thing. All I'm going to say is that is a damned convenient device to have that they should probably use a lot more often, because that mask thing is insane. I mean, it's it's already bad over on Mission Impossible. I like those movies, too. So... Pierce is probably one of the most interesting villains who is not, you know, uh, Loki. Because, first of all, because Robert Redford, who is an excellent actor, but more, for the, more to the point, he really is a true believer in the cause. He is someone who really does believe what he's saying. The ideal of humanity shouldn't be free. Shouldn't be free. That humanity should not be allowed to do all these things both good and bad, because it leads to a state of chaos and disorder and mess and just all this garbage. It's not worth it. So they land on the security side of the equation versus the freedom side. And he himself, he admits that, you know, Fury was one of the people who convinced that. I've always liked the idea that Pierce wasn't actually a full-fledged member of HYDRA, until after his interactions with Fury kind of made him believe in that concept, at which point he was contacted and recruited into the cause. I could be wrong about that, but I do lean that direction. And of course, you know, why make me the head of S.H.I.E.L.D.? Because you're the best. Because it's not like I'm just here to make evil and mwahaha. I have, I have a goal here, Fury. I have a job that I'm trying to accomplish. And so he dies. He dies. He is, he is one step past Fury, and he is killed. And I think the best bit that can be explained here is, in his dying breath, he says, Hail Hydra. Hail the ideal. And then there's a scene where we see the, the three helicarriers who are destroying themselves, and we see the ruins in the distance and the corpse in the front. This is one of the reasons I like the helicarriers turning on themselves plan. There's actually other ways to destroy those helicarriers. And let's not, again, let's not nitpick too hard here. But I like the symbolism of it. That Hydra's ideal is ultimately self-destructive. And that it turning on itself and being unable to sustain itself in the wake of any kind of construct, it basically shows it to be a degree of a house of cards. Given how severely Hydra is destroyed over the next several years of, of fictional time, I think that kind of follows through. And, of course, again, that wonderful visual image of the corpse and the ruins. Anyways, I just want to make a quick aside that Falcon can really fly. Good Lord, that man is maneuverable. You can kind of see the advantages of that. It's something that Stark himself does in this Iron Man suit. As an aside, though, I like how he has a chute. Of course he has a chute. Why wouldn't he have a chute built into there? I, I, it's just a very minor touch that I like. Although, at the height he opened that, he probably should have broken his legs. Anyways, <clears throat> so the algorithm happens. Looking at my notes here, the algorithm happens. The president, the president is there. Tony Stark is there, and some guy in Missouri. Now I mentioned that again because that gets across exactly what the Hydra ideal really is, 
It's nice to speak of the ideal. It's nice to speak of the broad sense of believing in the cause. But the harsh, truthful reality is that ideal means that that guy running that you know, baseball game or whatever it is, is a threat. Because he is a Democrat. Or he's a Republican. Or he volunteers at the shelter. Or maybe he doesn't agree with you know, certain security protocols. Or maybe he decides to try and steal stuff online. Very minor stuff, very little stuff, that Hydra has decided means he deserves to die. I'm sorry for getting topical here, but you can kind of see why this was so chilling to me, especially now. That is why I spit on the Hydra ideal, why I don't believe in it. Because I can't look at that and accept that. <sighs> so the helicarriers turn on each other. And now... We have to talk about Steve Rogers one last time. I, I, I am embarrassed to admit that I cried again at this scene. I'm not joking. Because I, I did it in the theater, too, when I first saw this. I remember. And I even said it out loud. See, what I said is that she was asking, why is he staying there? Why is he not fighting back? And I said, because Captain Rogers does what is right, not what is correct. That is the man in a nutshell. Even in a complex world, and acknowledging that sometimes the correct thing means doing something wrong. Sometimes the correct thing means doing something hard or difficult or brutal. But that's just not Rogers. Rogers does the right thing. And that costs. That hurts. And that doesn't always work out. And so he doesn't fight back when Bucky's coming after him. He is with him to the end. And he just, he just lays there and says, then finish your mission. Of course, the one defining trait of Captain Rogers' abilities is that charisma I mentioned earlier. His forthrightness, his honesty is what actually breaks through to Bucky. He manages to get to the person in there and, well, leads to Bucky dragging him out. Finding out about himself, that leads to Civil War, which leads to Infinity War, etc., etc. Uh, he's also in Black Panther. God, there's a film I want to watch again. The film kind of denouements. Maria goes to Stark. Kate goes to the CIA. Crossbones gets pulled in by someone. Brock. I haven't really talked about Brock that much. He, he does a good job. He basically just portrays a badass. But he is also someone who, again, is just... You know, very Hydra. It's just we don't have a lot of time spent on him. Unfortunately, we won't get any time spent on him after this point, too. And, of course, Fury symbolically burns his past and puts on the sunglasses. I thought that was an awesome scene that is, of course, destroyed by the fact that in the future he's wearing the eye patch again. Minor complaint. The very end, we see Strucker. I hope I'm pronouncing right because I'm terrible with German names. And he has the staff and he has the miracles. Now, this is obviously foreshadowing for, you know, uh, Ultron. But I bring this up here because this was at a unique point in cinematic history, for, for Marvel in particular, because they didn't have the rights to the X-Men, and as a consequence, mutants. And they really wanted to do something with mutants. This is actually what led to the Inhumans experiment, which, whether that failed or succeeded, that's up to you. But they, they inter introduced Quicksilver and Romanoff as a... Uh, Romanoff, wow. And Wanda... Ro uh, they introduced Quicksilver and Wanda 
Scarlet, Scarlet, there we go, Scarlet Witch, as specifically as kind of a deal they had made. And this was basically an experiment, just kind of stepping the toes into the water kind of a thing with adding those characters who are technically mutants, but they're not, they're not going to use the word mutants, they're not going to make them mutants because they're artificially infused and experimented on, etc., etc. So it kind of worked. And what I find funny about this is <laughs> by the modern era, they have rights to the mutants again. So we'll see where that goes, or has gone in Endgame, who knows. Either way, it was interesting stuff. Now next week, we're going to be going way off on left field here into something effectively totally unrelated, which I hope you'll be here for, because I'm kind of looking forward to it myself. I'll see you around, guys.